Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Nigel Marriott tells us about the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula and the Alhambra. This morning I have an absolute feast of history for you in three parts, really. I intend to start with an overview of the 800 years of Muslim rule in Spain. Then I'm going to say a few things about the problems and the achievements of this era. And lastly, I plan to move down to the south of Spain, to the Alhambra in Granada. The invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. Death of the Prophet Muhammad, 22nd of April, 571 AD. In fact, I, I think, uh, according to the Muslim faith, he, he went up to heaven in a, in a chariot from the al Aska Mosque in Jerusalem. Anyway, it was enormous energy and purpose released with the new religion, and it swept across the Middle East and North Africa. Spain was invaded in, in 711, with 10,000 men under their leader, Tariq ibn Zayad. The Arabs, this Arab invasion force, um, brought most of Iberia under Islamic rule in an eight-year campaign until meeting stubborn and organized resistance in the mountains of the north by the remaining Visigoths and Hispano-Romans. Muslim rule lasted for about 800 years and only finally ended with the capture of Granada by Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492. So there we have it, the briefest outline of the Arab rule in the Iberian Peninsula. Okay, let's have a look at a bit of the detail. They estimate there were about six to seven million people living in Spain at, at the time. There was a, a Visigoth king, King Roderick, who, as the story goes, was both a bad king and a bad man. He is, is meant to have forced himself on a lady of high status, of high social rank. And her father was so incensed by this and his friends that they went over to North Africa and not only invited the Arabs to invade the country, but actually fought with them against their own king. So he was swept aside very quickly. Now, this gives a, an, an idea of the invasion strategy. Landed near Gibraltar, took Seville, and then Cordoba, up to Toledo, and through the Pyrenees, and they, it's just quite extraordinary, the, the speed they went up and, and, the, and the distance they covered. They went right up to Tours and Avignon in, in the south of France. And it was only stopped by Charles Martel at, at the Battle of Poitiers, about 738. And the, the Arabs have been thrown back behind the Pyrenees by the end of the 760s. Now here's a nice picture of Berber cavalry. Now these were very tough, hard, even brutal troops. Their ancestors had fought for, for Hannibal at his great victories of Trebia, Trasimene, and of course Hanai, where eight legions were smashed. And they were pretty good, and they, were, they used um, a long spear, like a, a lance, and they'd rely on uh, speed and terror, basically. 
came round the corner very suddenly and you got everybody got an enormous shock with these lances. Now here's a, some example of Moorish soldiers, cavalry uh, up there. The, the infantry was pretty good. Um, if you remember from the Punic Wars, Hannibal had uh, Libyan infantry, which was very tough, and, uh, and, and they were a, a huge part of the victory at, at Cannae. Lots of archers, horse archers, of course, that had spread across from the Middle East. The uh, Parthians and the Sassanids were extremely fond of horse archers. And um, until recently, there used to be that expression, a Parthian shot, that that was when a Parthian um, horse archer was riding away from you, and he turned and took one last shot, and that's the one that finished you off. Right, now this is very interesting. We can see these uh, nascent Christian kingdoms emerging. Portugal, Galicia, Leon, Castile, Aragon, Navarre, now, the Franks were very happy to su support these fledgling um, countries in northern Spain as they wanted a buffer between them and the Moors. And so Galicia, funny enough, they were invaded by Vikings, but they beat them off with heavy use of ballista. Leon means legion in Spanish, and the Romans had held Spain with one legion. So about 6,000 men plus auxiliaries. So that was, if you like, the heart of Hispano-Roman culture. And they'd have a legion there, and then they'd send a few vexillations, as they used to call them, different parts of the country. So they'd send a cohort down to Cordoba. And they, they hadn't needed many soldiers. And if there was any trouble, it was in the Asturias, which you can see on, on the left there. The, these were tough mountain people and they gave the Berber troops run for their money so and and those other Castile was was going to be the largest and most powerful country in the in the Iberian Peninsula was a country at that time and during the the reconquest most of the troops most of the money came from Castile Aragon supplied shipping and leather and things like that, but they weren't nearly as important as Castile. Navarre is, is a, a very interesting country. You might remember that Richard the Lionheart's wife, Bessengeria, she was a princess of Navarre, and they got married in, in Cyprus, but that's another story. Now, as far as the reconquest go, this is uh, 1150. It took a long time to recapture this land. The Christians were united. They had one single purpose, get the Moors out, throw them into the sea, basically. And with a few ups and downs, it was a strange time. There were a lot of alliances. There was a lot of diplomacy. There was a lot of trade going on. At the same time, the, the, the war was inexorable. Cordoba fell in 1236 and several in 1248. It's very interesting, the innovation, as they say, is needed in, in warfare, because if you don't innovate, the other side will innovate and wipe you out. So what did the Spanish have? They were well organized, and they used two principal weapons of war, which turned the tide in their favor. One is crossbows, which although got a shorter range than the 
archer or longbow is absolutely deadly at close quarters. If you get a, a good crossbow, it's al almost like a rifle shot. And artillery, there was, there was a lot of artillery coming in and the Spanish used artillery ex extensively. And the Arabs never mastered artillery. And so they were going to be beaten. It was just a question of time. The Spanish soldiers, some of them used shields, almost sort of Roman inside, because they were sort of Hispano-Romans. The surrender of Granada in 1492, the, the last Emir, I'm going to talk about the Alhambra and Granada in a minute. The last Emir, which Arabic means ruler, of 22 Emirs who, who, who ruled in, in Granada. He had no choice to surrender. The, the odds were overwhelming. Within a few days, the whole of the Alhambra would have been reduced to rubble and every single person he, did, he, he ever knew would have been killed. So he surrendered. He had about 1,500 followers with him and he handed over them and said, these are the keys of paradise. So it's quite a, a sad ending. They, they moved south. Ferdinand and Isabella gave him a larger estate. They were reasonably generous. They weren't vindictive about it, but they weren't welcome. And Boadil, in fact, died in Fez. He went to North Africa because, as I say, it's pretty clear that the Moors were not welcome in Spain. Now, I'm going to talk about one of the most interesting subjects, the, the golden century of Islam. The Caliphate of Cordoba that lasted 100 years from the accession of Abid al-Rahman III in 912 until the sacking of the city in a disastrous civil war in 1013. Now, this is basically 100 years. He, he was known as Rahman the Just. He was a, a refugee from the Umayyad, caliphate that used to be in Baghdad. They were overthrown by another dynasty called the Abbasids, who weren't, weren't nearly as nice as them, I have to say. The Abbasids were much stricter Muslims and much less tolerant. But Rahman III managed to escape and he, he, went, he went to Spain. And then he was, a, he was a very able ruler, a great patron of the arts and of learning. He declared himself king, caliph, in Islam. It's all about if you're descended from the prophet, various arguments over the years about who is descended from the prophet. This was quite a, an enlightened dynasty, and, and their saying was, the ink of the scholar is, is worth more than the sword of the warrior. During this time, Cordoba overtook Constantinople as the most prosperous city in the world, with, with a population of circa half a million. It was preeminent as a centre of learning and study, and scholars flocked from all over northern Europe and the Mediterranean basin to its universities and lecture halls. Many advances were made at this time in astronomy, chemistry, surgery, and other branches of medicine. Their knowledge of irrigation was unmatched, it was a period of great religious tolerance, although it's true that the Christian Jews had to pay the jerza. Now, this was a, a, a tax to finance the war in the north, and it was also, uh, you had to pay it as a kind of submission to Muslim rule. His son was called Hizam II. He was an absolutely wonderful scholar. 
and he attracted all, all these people and vastly in advance of what other people were doing at the time. The Arabs are very good at mechanical inventions, mills, irrigation systems. As I say, largely self-educated, but learned much from Greek and Roman sources, um, innovators and scholars in the fields of astronomy, mathematics, botany, chemistry, medicine, and agronomy. Medina Asahara. Now, this is an absolutely fascinating place. It's, it's one of the most exciting places in Europe that no one's ever been to. Now, Medina means city in Arabic. Al-Qasar means palace, Al-Qasaba, fortified fortress. This site is 112 hectares. To give you an idea, for Farnham Parks, uh, 130 hectares. So it's slightly smaller than Farnham Park. And this complex in included reception halls, mosques, offices, a mint, workshops, library, barracks, houses and bars. Water was supplied through aqueducts extended from uh, Roman originals. As I say, the Arabs are great copyists. They obviously took advantage of what uh, was available to them. Now, it was built by Rahman Majas, basically to en enhance the prestige and status of, of the new caliph and as a symbol of power to rival the eastern caliphates. Built a few miles from Cordoba, it became the capital of the caliphate and was chosen because in Roman times, Cordoba, which was just next door, then called Betis, had been, had been the capital of the province. On top of the hill here, there was an amazing complex and palace, and most of the buildings were built from limestone. That made it known as the shining city, the radiant one. As you know, the Arabs <laughs> loved made everything very poetical. It has been described as the Versailles of the Middle Ages, and it must have been truly wonderful if, if you approached perhaps on horseback at that time and you saw this shining city on the top of a mountain. There were lots of philosophers here, and as I said, there were lecture halls, and people came from all over Europe to listen to them. And important philosophers included Averroes and Ibn Arabi and Maimonides. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of him. And so it was a tremendously important place. Now I'm going to say something about the Arabs had a sort of, I can only describe it as a kind of love affair with water. They were people of the sand, desert people. They always thought of, of water as a symbol of prestige and power. They were highly sophisticated because water is very precious. So their irrigation systems were very good. And, and even now in the south of Spain, you know, the, the irrigation systems are still used to, to this day. And they'd also learned from the Romans and many ancient cultures, such as the Babylonians, Sumerians, and Chaldeans. Babylon, in fact, had uh, no water at all. It was all irrigation. They were also pretty heavily into hygiene, which I, I, I love to say that we were good at, but that, that's not the case. And in Christian countries, uh, it was sort of the annual bath, if you were lucky. Part of the Muslim religion, you're, you're meant to wash yourself before you pray. And um, I don't know how many times you're meant to do it, but... If you're praying five times a day, that's quite a lot of 
washing. Chaha Bagh, and it, it's the classic design for an Islamic garden. Uh, it, it represents the four rivers of, of paradise, one of water, wine, honey, and milk. And the Taj Mahal follows this layout. In the Quran, the prophet talks about underground rivers, sort of surging water. And, and, and in fact, these in, in the Islamic garden, they are always lowered. So the Chahabag, and you, you see it everywhere throughout Islamic culture. The Taj Mahal garden, one of the most famous uh, sites in the world, I suppose, and various stories about that, that the uh, Mughal emperor had the two architects who he built it, had them strangled, so they, they couldn't make anything better than the Taj Mahal somewhere else. There again, it, these designs are based on paradise, as it was seen in the Islamic mind. The Cordoba Mosque, which is extraordinarily beautiful, and the horseshoe arches. Arabs were quite happy to employ anybody in Frankish craft, Byzantine craftsmen. And th th these craftsmen used to go around Europe and they went from one project to another. So they might do some arabesque, some Moorish architecture, and then they move on to a cathedral, wherever the demand was. The Alcazar, Cordoba, this extraordinary palace in Cordoba, the most visited garden in Spain from the Moorish period. Now, if you see these little trees here, this is quite interesting that um, in the Koran, it talks about in paradise, in heaven, you go around and all these little orchards with these, with these <laughs> fairly small trees bursting with fruit. So you can go around eating apples and pears and pomegranates and that kind of thing. But obviously they're especially good because you're in heaven. The Alhambra, the red fort, literally um, the red one. Now, if we look at the front here, this is the fortified part known as the red fort because of its sun-dried brickwork at the front. Built on Roman foundations, of course, like... I think it's fair to say that a lot of the hard foundation work had already been done by the Romans. In the background, the um, fantastic Sierra Nevada. This part of Spain is, is, is where they have quite a lot of cattle and that kind of thing, because it's perfect temperature for, for producing milk. Quite hard to get milk in some parts of Spain. I'm going to look at some of the things inside the Alhambra. Obviously, in the spaces, I can't, I can't cover it all. I'm just going to look at a few things. Now, this, this vaulting was known as real arabesque or Moorish architecture, stalactites. And, and what they are to re represent here is the prophet being in, in the cave in Arabia, being uh, dressed by the archangel Gabriel. And so, stalactites, basically. It is extraordinarily, extraordinarily beautiful done on plaster, stucco, basically. A lot of work, industry, many, many craftsmen working on that. Moorish court on the, on the way into the Court of the Lions. Absolutely beautiful with all this uh, intricate carving. And of course, the fountain to create an atmosphere of peace and wealth and power. This is a thing they had uh, lots of poetry. The Arabs are, are absolutely mad on poetry because most of the Quran is written in poetry. 
And so they used to put up quotations from, from the Quran and also added a bit of poetry of their own, like the only victor is God and that kind of thing. So here there's some quotations from local poets and that kind of thing. Now there's a, a, a lovely window where the emir might have looked out at his children playing outside. Again, at the top, you can see some nice uh, geometric work, more sayings on left and right. This is the famous Court of the Lions, Court of the Ambassadors. In the center here, there's an alabaster bowl on 12 marble lions. And again, you've got the Charter Bard, you've got the four rivers there. And they were very proud because of the 12 lions and every hour, one of the lions spouted water. So this is where ambassadors, envoys and ambassadors would come seeking an alliance, seeking a, a trade deal. It's all, all about opulence, water, power. 108 pillars here, I think, as far as I remember. There's a court of the lions at, at night. This is the best preserved part of the Alhambra. I, I think uh, even Ferdinand and Isabella were overawed by the beauty of this uh, Court of the Lions. That's just quite interesting. This is the Vizier, the ruler. Uh, I suppose you could only com compare it to the ruler was the Caliph, the king, who is directly descended, according to their belief, from the uh, Prophet Muhammad. So the only sort of modern equivalent I can think in Western terms is he would be the monarch or the chairman and the vizier was the chief executive officer or the managing director. So he'd settle disputes, arrange alliances, and the Muslim rulers were quite sort of open-minded about that. You could be a Jew or a Christian and you could still be vizier. Obviously, you had to be loyal to the caliph, but you didn't have to be a, a, a Muslim. I'm just going to say something about the history of the Alhambra. There was no real mention of it in, in accounts, as far as I can find out, in anything by the Romans or the Visigoths. There was no mention until the 13th century, until the um, 1238, when the first of the Nazarite emirs came here and started building. And as I mentioned earlier, there were 22 uh, emirs, and the last one being Bodil, 1492. When the reconquest was completed, the um, Alhambra became a, a Christian court. Ferdinand and Isabel apparently put on Arab clothes and, and held court there. It was all considered rather exotic. And they, they built a Franciscan monastery and the church was also built. And there's rather um, Charles V built a, a building in the middle of the uh, Alhambra, which is a rather ugly building, actually. I, I don't think it's even finished to this day. It, it's interesting that during the reconquest, a lot depended on reputation. Now, Ferdinand was re respected by the army, but the queen... Isabella of Castile was revered. They said that when she came to the front line, that the Muslim armies rolled back like the sea. During the 18th and 19th centuries, the Alhambra fell into neglect 
and its salons were converted to taverns occupied by thieves and beggars. French troops were there from 1808 to 1812. They converted Paris into barracks. And they did quite a lot of sort of mindless vandalism, as well as um, when they were in Egypt, they blew the nose off the Sphinx. Extraordinary act of vandalism. While they're at the Alhambra, they blew up a couple of towers. In 1870, after years of neglect, the Alhambra was, was declared a, a national monument. Since then, it has been protected, restored, cared for, and even improved. It became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1984. I'm just going to say something about the gardens. They were very formal, wonderful gardens, enclosed and secret. Now, this is very interesting that the word paradise comes from, from the Persian. Persi, meaning enclosed, and Dira, meaning garden. So they thought paradise was an enclosed garden, and they liked enclosed places. You know, you could have, have secret meetings with envoys in here, and have the harem would be hidden away, and lots of things like that. They, secret spaces. Here's the Alhambra and the Henralife. Henralife means garden of the architect, I tried, to, I tried to find out the history of that. It's not really clear. He, he may have been the architect of the, the Nazareth palaces. He, he might have been given this garden as a sort of thank you present, as a Alameda gardens there, where the Arabs like planting unusual fragrant plants, They're very interscented plants. Sultana's garden, charming little fountain there, rather sort of overshadowed by all those trees there. That long water there on, on, on the left is absolutely wonderful, nice fountains. It's, it's quite an interesting thing that the Arabs and a lot of Muslim people come from hot countries. So an English garden, for instance, is designed for walking in, but the Arabs, it's hot enough walking around, so they didn't like walking, basically. They used to go into a garden for contemplation, they thought they'd have a spiritual experience with the shimmering water and you, you, you were close to God with the falling water and that kind of thing. The garden, wonderful feeling of depth, peace and tranquility. They are absolutely lovely gardens. And now, now, this is really interesting, a bit, a bit quirky and a bit unusual. This is a, an irrigation banister. I just thought it was such an amazing thing when I saw it. You go down these steps and there's this irrigation banister next to you. Rather clever, isn't it? Built in about 1200. That's the kind of thing there. They absolutely love the moors. You know, they, if you pull that off and they, they show everybody and they'd be very proud of their innovations in the irrigation. You couldn't resist putting in some of the flowers and the plants that the moors loved. Arabian jasmine, lovely sharp deep white colour. Bougainvillea, which is a, a classic a Spanish colour, comes from the brack rather than the uh, sepal, but it's, it's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful plant. Oleander, which anyone who's been to the Mediterranean, it's all over the Mediterranean, Greece, North Africa, Italy, Spain. There's a rather interesting story about that. As a Moorish woman, you didn't have a lot of choices or status, to put it like that. 
you're either a pleasure unit or, or a brood mare, sometimes both, of course. So sometimes he used to get a bit fed up with her husband. Oleander is poisonous and it's a slow acting poison. So what, what you do is you cut up a bit and put it in, the, in his salad. Nothing dramatic happens, but he steadily gets worse. And over the period of three weeks or so, you'll suddenly slip into oblivion. And of course, it's absolutely nothing to do with you. This is the most wonderful, the jacaranda, absolute heaven. Now, now that is a piece of paradise. Myrtle uh, is, is very interesting. Uh, a, a scented shrub, which the Moors loved. I mean, so lots of it in the Henrique and the Alameda Gardens. Symbol of love in Spain, still widely worn there by a bride on her on her wedding day. Absolutely, absolutely lovely plant. Hibiscus. I, I bet you've seen this one on, on your many trips uh, abroad down to Spain. Fairly common, but a lovely, lovely plant. Now, cypress, um, these are widely grown in Italy and Spain. They're very useful because their roots grow straight down and they can be grown close together to form a screen and they look wonderful if, so ornamentally and especially if you, if you like order in your garden. Mimosa, Mimosa pudica, meaning the shy one in Latin. Very prolific shrub, is a glorious staple of Spanish gardens. Gardens by moonlight and oil, it's rather nice. This is my parents at the Alhambra on honeymoon in 1947. Today, there's thousands and thousands of people going in and, and they're worried about all the paving being worn out and that kind of thing. But in, in those days, there was hardly anyone there. So they were offered, you know, you put on a nice Arab outfit and um, have a cup of mint tea and that kind of thing. Rather fun, 1947. Spain was still a pretty, pretty wild country then. And on the, on the way back, they caught a, a train and half the train went over, over the cliff. Fortunately, they were in the front half. It is a romantic pitch, again, Victorian 19th century picture audience in Spain. I'm just going to say something about a man called Washington Irving. Now he was an, an American writer. In 1829 he traveled from Seville to Granada where he took up residence in the palace which was in, a, in an abandoned state and he wrote his Tales of the Alhambra, a series of short stories and sketches about the Moors and the Spaniards and helped establish the romantic image of Al-Andalus, which persists to this day. I'm going to leave it there. Well, thank you very much indeed, Nigel. That was really, really interesting. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.